from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Friends and familiars, thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a seeker who has plumbed the depths of spirituality and resurfaced with enlightenment. His philosophy is pragmatic and his spirituality is refined. He's joining me today to talk about his recent book, Daydream Believer, and his upcoming book, uncertain places. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Mitch Horowitz. Mitch, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining me. I enjoy Daydream Believer immensely, not only because of your tremendous insight into complex esoteric ideas, but also the clarity with which you explain them. So I've really been looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is a very special book for me, and uh, it's meaningful to hear. Absolutely. So, I've heard you state in an interview that you would apply the New Age label to yourself, but this book speaks more specifically on new thought. Can you tell us what the difference is exactly between New Age and New Thought? Well, they've converged to a very great extent. I define New Age as a radically ecumenical culture of therapeutic spirituality. I recognize that many writers and commentators use the term New Age as an epithet, use it in a negative way. But I don't think that has historical vintage. That's certainly not how people who began applying the label to themselves in the 70s and 80s felt about it. And I think it's a caricature. At the same time, the basic gambit of the New Age culture has really converged with New Thought, which is a philosophy that vests belief in the ideal that thoughts are causative, and there may be various metaphysical and psychological beliefs, explorations at the back of that, but that's the essential new thought premise, thought causation. And you'll find that that is, in many regards, the essential new age premise as well. People who are part of the therapeutic spiritual culture, the recovery culture, the alternative spiritual culture may not use the term new thought, but back of a lot of what they're reading, doing, and talking about are various notions of mind causation. Sometimes 
couched in terms that I don't particularly favor, like manifestation or a law of attraction. Those might be things that we talk about, but essentially to a greater or lesser degree, the outlook of new age and new thought is similar. Okay. So you mentioned new age kind of originating in the seventies. Would that be kind of around the time where the hippie movement, people started diverging away from the Abrahamic religions and going to more Eastern philosophy? Yes. And in the seventies, you saw the advent of a magazine called New Age Journal, which was at one time very influential. And that probably popularized New Age, which was floating around in the subculture as a term that defined people who were interested in alternative health, alternative modalities of living, maybe a a kind of post-hippie outlook on life in which people wanted to found and define their own structures in terms of spirituality, in terms of community, maybe in terms of sexuality, in terms of new uses of technology. There was a convergence with the whole earth review crowd, and there was a belief that we could rip it up and start again, so to speak, as you were referencing. And there was certainly a rupture, Woodstock generation, post-Woodstock generation with the Abrahamic religious traditions There had already been an uptick of Eastern philosophies that were migrating West, yogic philosophies, Vedic, Zen, and health modalities as well, including macrobiotic eating, various alternative health methods, and to signal their community of people would very freely call themselves New Age. I remember the day not very long ago where the term political correctness wasn't a bad term. The term woke wasn't a bad term. You know, I, I knew people who would freely define themselves that way, but then the term morphs into something else in the culture. And I try to reclaim some of these terms. So I recognized in my own work that I was a lot more relaxed in a profound sense when I just accepted the term new age rather than made an argument against it or tried to define myself in distinction to it because The fact is, when you're in this business, you're going to get called that no matter what you do. So you can either run from it or embrace it. And I chose the latter. (laughs) Gotcha. Well, so you say in your book that the true aim of life is self-expression. Is that a facet of Nietzsche's will to power or is that something totally different? That's a great question. I came to it independently, but I found great sucker within Nietzsche and Emerson for that expression. And it coalesces well with the Nietzschean outlook. I think that one of the frustrations I had on the spiritual path for many years is that we in the West reprocess a lot of Eastern teachings and teachings found within the Abrahamic tradition. And we speak of non-attachment, non-identification, and yet you find seekers running throughout the spiritual culture from the traditional to the alternative margins of that culture who are deeply deeply in pursuit of things they want to accomplish in life, and they see spirituality as a means to that, which is a reasonable gambit. But at the same time, they feel pressured to constantly reprocess these things through words like service or statements like thy will be done, feeling that one almost has to kind of reconfigure or even perfume one's wishes. People speak of personality, ego, worldly attachments, spiritual materialism as things to transcend. And I think that can tear the seeker in two. In fact, I don't think the sensitive individual needs to condition his or her wishes in life 
they can be expressed in any number of terms and will be expressed in a number of terms based on an individual's outlook. But all of it, it seems to me, comes down to self-expression. And I felt a need to define that more sharply and not to inadvertently create a kind of divergence between what I want and what I'm seeking in the spiritual realm. When I say spiritual, I mean extra physical. And if someone takes a metaphysical view of life, it stands to reason that that's going to figure very significantly in whatever it is a person wants to express, accomplish, or attain in life. Okay. And so within that framework, how is self-expression utilized to achieve power if that's like the underlying drive? Well, for me, personally speaking, my life hit a turn for the better when I came to grips with and was frank with myself about my primary aim being to write and speak on metaphysics in practice and historically. I'm never happier than when I'm doing that, such as what we're doing right now. And I was hit with the realization that that's not just some psychological soap bubble or just noise being made through the wind chimes. <laughs> that's an actual foundational wish in my life. And I think we all have one that we either reprocess or have difficulty, frankly, acknowledging. And so for me, that became not a byproduct of my search, but a core part of my search. And again, it's going to be different for different people. I'm very slow to, and I encourage people to be very slow to judge other people's wishes, because there could be something very, very meaningful at the back of a person's wishes or needs. An artist, for example, wants a constituency. He or she wants their work to be read, to be seen, to be known, to be understood. An idea without a constituency doesn't go very far. And whatever it is that the person wants in life could be fulfilling some very, very deep need. Just yesterday, I was talking to somebody who disclosed to me that he was experiencing difficulty acknowledging his aims even to himself. And he said when he read them out loud or when he spoke them out loud, he felt there was something superficial or shallow in what he was saying. And I've been burdened by that experience myself. And yet the the sensitive individual has needs at the back of his or her wishes that may go unexpressed, even very privately. And I encourage people to trust what their wishes are because they're going to reassert themselves regardless of what we do. So where does that perceived guilt or almost shame come from? Is that like societal conditioning to where if you have anything but what you believe are truly altruistic motives, you're like, you feel almost evil? <laughs> well, all religions, whatever universal truths they may possess, are the product of human hands. There's no exception to that. And so if you look at the religious experience in the East, for example, going back to antiquity, a man or woman had no more possibility of dying in a social caste other than that to which he or she had been born than they did walking the surface of another planet. That was just an absolute fact of life. And the condition in the Mediterranean basin and the Near East wasn't much different, giving rise to the advent of Christianity, Judaism, Islam. And 
when you're dealing with an ancient society, and this, I say ancient, but this continued for centuries and centuries into modernity, and to some extent still does, depending on where you live in the world or what your circumstances are, you're dealing with a social situation where the strata into which you're born is almost cemented. And religion responded to that by trying to give the individual a different valuation on life, by trying to posit the presence of a greater world, an unseen world, an extra physical existence in which one's value wasn't measured by a bloodline or commerce or other things that particularly ancient men and women were fit into in a niche that was forever unchanging. And I don't feel that that's the position in which contemporary seekers, again, depending on the part of the world, depending on circumstance, necessarily find themselves. And I think that that was a conditioned point of view that through dint of repetition over centuries and centuries and centuries has come to seem like unquestioned truth. Familiarity is not truth. Individuals have to re-verify these things within each generation. And to say that, for example, what we don't see is what really matters that our lives are lives of illusion or temporary attachments or maya or samsara or whatever term one wants to use. Again, that's been so frequently repeated over the course of so many centuries that it seems as natural as calling water wet. We're all supposed to nod our heads in agreement to that set of principles. But those are decisions that were made before us. Those are decisions that other people made. I'm not saying they're universally wrong, but nor am I willing to concede to their being universally right. If you're on an individual ethical and spiritual search, I think you owe it to yourself to take verification of a principle very, very seriously. And I think I remember you saying that this was a development later in your life, but you say that you're a Satanist and that Satan represents radical individuality. Within a spiritual context, is this the individuation of the self that Jung spoke of, or is that something totally different, and can you kind of expand on it? It may have convergences with what Jung spoke about. What I'm really referencing is the esoteric Satanism of the Romantic movement, where you had writers like William Blake and Percy Bysshe Shelley and Lord Byron, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, and others who were viewing the satanic tradition from a reformed perspective, which I do, and were making what I consider to be a deeper and esoteric, but also historically defensible reading of that so-called adversarial force that you find written about in human parable and scripture, which is written about at times very ambiguously. And as I was making reference with regard to concepts like non-attachment, through dint of familiarity, we have come to use the term Satan in a very rote way over the course of centuries so that we assume there's this consensus-based point of view over that force as being somehow evil and everything kind of aligns with that throughout the course of human history. But that's an interpretation. That's conditional. That's a point of view that took shape in centuries following the biblical era. And I felt that it deserved reconsideration and rereading. So in my latest book, Uncertain Places, and to a degree in Daydream Believer, 
I make a different reading of Genesis 3, of the encounter between Eve and the serpent in the garden, who I see not as a deceiver, but as an emancipator. Humanity wouldn't be humanity if it was kind of a kept poodle in a paradisical garden. The human psyche needed to go beyond that garden and enter into a realm that was much rougher. And there may be an intimate connection between friction and creativity, just as there's an intimate connection between tragedy and artistic excellence. And the force that I reference as the satanic is what I see as the force of usurpation, rebellion, radical individualism, revolution, maybe on a personal scale. And so it might coalesce with certain aspects that you were referencing in Jung, but I'm trying to look back, best as I'm capable, to the ancient tradition, as well as to the work of the Romantics and the work of later, more recent figures, and make a different esoteric reading of the Satanic, which has been very fortifying and very helpful and very enriching to me personally. It's not for everyone, but I, again, feel that if we take seriously the prospect of an independent search, as long as the individual is not doing anything violative to another person, as long as the individual is not closing off to another person, the striving for potential that he wants for himself, I feel that we owe it to ourselves not to get hung up on handed down definitions, no matter their vintage. And that's been part of my current search. Do you ever apply the term Satan past the individualist will more to the all-encompassing aspect of self-aware consciousness? Because with regard to Adam and Eve and the garden and the serpent, I think most Eastern religions, the serpent represents wisdom. So it was like, you know, she ate the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge. What was it? The knowledge of good and evil? Oh, the tree of knowledge of yeah. good and evil. Yeah, so they became self-aware in effect. So is that maybe more like a Luciferian concept? Well, I don't feel there's a necessary distinction between the term Lucifer, a Latin-derived term from Scripture. Well, that probably comes from in its earliest incarnation, the book of Isaiah, and was probably a reference to the king of Babylon historically. But these were terms as uh, shaitan, the Hebrew root for Satan, the term Lucifer being Latin-derived term for a fallen morning star. These were terms that got reprocessed in post-biblical antiquity and into the early modern era. And some people will draw divisions between those two today. I do not. I don't think that's a philosophical imperative. My friend Duncan Trussell joked to me once off mic that... Uh, Lucifer is diet Satan kind of <laughs> rolling on the floor. And, um, I don't think the distinction is a necessity, but I understand the wish to do that, especially since these vocabulary terms are so hot button. I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners are saying, what, they're talking about Satanism, you know, <laughs> and, um, people I love have said to me, my God, I agree with everything you're saying, but must you use that language? It's so divisive. It's so hot button. You'll never be able to reform it. And they're probably right, but coming from the Abrahamic tradition myself, I grew up in a traditional Jewish household. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah. These were terms I was not unaccustomed to hearing in Torah readings in synagogue, whether Shaitan or Azazel, uh, who was a demonic figure to whom the Hebrews sacrificed goats when they were wandering in the desert. And I'm attached to 
that language for its historicism. I also like to be very, very blunt about what I'm saying, even if I'm bringing a radical reinterpretation to it. My use of those terms, I often point out to people, is not strictly metaphorical. There are some people who will use the term Satan in a metaphorical sense to signify the true will or the inner will, maybe in a Nietzschean sense. I'm by no means opposed to that, but I do believe that our ancient ancestors all over the world, from Polynesia to Siberia, sought relationships with what they detected as energies or intelligences or deific presences in nature. They sought petitionary relationships with these beings. And I, whatever name, term, uh, formality one wants to use, I am very interested in that tradition of pursuing relationships with, you can call it what you will, extra physical intelligences or expressions from different intersections of time or different dimensions. So I use the term in a not quite metaphorical way. Okay. Well, not to belabor labels like we've been talking about, but I wanted to narrow this one down because it kind of feeds into my next question. Yeah. Assuming that you consider yourself a Satanist, do you practice what you would say is a left-hand path approach? Yes, I do. Okay. I have an essay about the left-hand path approach on Medium, and it's called Painted Black. That's the name of the article. And I updated it recently, actually, to respond to Vladimir Putin's recent invocation of Satanism and his justification for annexing four Ukrainian republics. The left-hand path is a concept that actually derives from ancient Vedic spirituality. And you could say in contemporary terms that its meaning is my will be done versus thy will be done. So instead of looking for a deific presence to whom you submit, what you're really looking to is to heighten a sense of self, which doesn't necessarily preclude a deific search, nor does it require it. There are many different subsects of beliefs, pursuits, outlooks within the left-hand path. I think when people hear these things, of course, they jump to the understandable conclusion that this is somehow a outlook of amorality or libertinism or an unethical path. I remember one night years and years ago, back when Bill O'Reilly was still on television, I think a member of the Church of Satan was on TV with Bill and and he said at one point, okay, so you people just want to have a good time. And <laughs> I thought that was not entirely unfair, yeah. but Why not? that's not my outlook. <laughs> um, and, uh, I do believe very deeply in reciprocity and relationships. I do believe in a human wholeness. I take very seriously what some people might call karma. It's not a term I use myself, but I might speak in terms of cosmic reciprocity. I take very seriously debts owed. I take very seriously loyalty or solidarity, the keeping of one's word. I feel very, very strongly that my path needs to be one of nonviolence, by which I don't mean desisting from legitimate self-defense, but I mean doing nothing to disrupt another person's sense for potential insofar as I 
strive in that direction myself. So reciprocity plays a major part of my path. So I do describe it as both a spiritual and an ethical path. Okay. Well, do you believe in the hermetic concept of the universal mind? Yes. Hermetic spirituality grew out of a, a kind of amalgam of Greek and Egyptian thought in the late stages of Egyptian civilization and the city of Alexandria in the generations immediately following the death of Christ. And one of the hermetic concepts, maybe the core hermetic concept, is that there exists what the Greeks called nous, or what we might call a higher mind, an infinite mind, a greater mind. And that the stuff of creation, the stuff from which nothing can be subtracted or added to, was seen in the Hermetic worldview as thought, as thought. It was a kind of extreme idealism. And the notion was that there exists this great higher mind, nous, and creation, the reality that we experience, passes through these concentric circles and that we are, in a sense, figments of that greater mind dwelling in a particular concentric circle. One of the things that I've found extremely helpful in the Hermetic worldview, and it varied, is that as beings who dwell in what might be considered a concentric circle of existence, we do exist under experience many, many different laws and forces. The Hermetic worldview held that as we are products of some greater mind, so too can we use our minds to create, not just in a cognitive or motor skill way or in an analytic way, but our minds can concretize a reality as well. This is summarized in the Hermetic principle, as above, so below, which I think is a correlate to the scriptural principle, God created man in its own image. So within the Hermetic worldview, it stands to reason that if one takes seriously the dictum as above, so below, or God created man in his own image, so can we create. But in a difference with certain positive mind or creative mind philosophies that sprang up in the current world, the hermetic point of view was deeply cognizant of the limits and the suffering that individuals are bound to experience. We're very, very far away from the center of things, so to speak. And the place where we dwell, we know, obviously, physical decline, death. There's no exception to that. We know mass, kick a rock, and you will feel pain. <laughs> That's a, a law, a natural law, as much as any other. So within the hermetic worldview, the individual has to exist in friction with these other laws and forces. It's the tragedy of human nature in a certain sense. It's probably what the psalmist was referencing when it was written, ye are as gods, but ye shall die as princes. In a sense, that's a very good summation of hermetic thought, even though it appears in Hebrew scripture and the Psalms. And it's tempting to describe hermeticism as an ancestor to today's new thought, because I've described some similarities. But there are very few straight lines. There are very few uninterrupted family trees in history, if any. And so I don't see new thought as a contemporary expression of hermeticism. I see it as a modern 
development, one that maybe has certain parallel insights to hermeticism, but I look very carefully for parallel insights because when you find that people who are separated by vast stretches of geography and tradition, language, custom, culture are coming sometimes of their own accord to similar insights, that may be the centrail of a certain truth. I look very, very carefully for parallel insights. But studying Hermeticism was also very helpful to me. In fact, I couldn't have written Daydream Believer without it because it helped me to resolve some of the contradictions in New Thought. New Thought has never developed a persuasive theology of suffering. New Thought has never come to terms with catastrophe, tragedy, death in ways that I find compelling and consistent. Hermeticism did, it seems to me. There's a gambit behind both beliefs that an individual may or may not share or may or may not find appealing. But for me, Hermeticism resolved some of the contradictions that I was struggling with in New Thought. And with regard to Hermeticism having this concept of us all being tied to this universal mind, you, however, are using the left-hand path approach. So right-hand path is thy will be done and implies immersion. How is your practice different with regard to your attachment to a universal mind, but still being separate and following this path for the achievement of your own self-expression and your own will? That's a wonderful question, and I think that's extremely well-framed. I do not see my goal as a seeker to rejoin with a kind of numinous whole. I see the gift that I have been given, which is life and which is expressiveness and which is the capacity to create, as the thing with which I am primarily concerned. I also see and understand that, at least within the hermetic framework, as I think you've described it, and, and very rightly so, there is an emanation point of thought from which what is derives. And as such, there is a human wholeness. And I have debts to that human wholeness that I cannot shirk, or I'm shirking the same to myself. So I take very seriously that what I do in my life and the manner in which I relate to other people is part of the very limbs that I possess, so to speak. So I think that I'm damaging my own human ecosystem, if I can put it in those terms, if I break my word, violate another person, take something that's not mine, and so on and so forth. I mean, those are just a few examples of myriad ways in which we interact with other people. There's a Talmudic precept from a book called Pirkei Avos that I value very deeply. A master is asking several students to identify the traits of an evil man. And some of the students, all the students have good answers. You know, they might say a bad heart, a bad name. You know, they identify all these different traits. And one student says, the definition of a bad man is he who borrows and does not repay. And the master says, I favor your words because everybody else's words are contained within them. And in pursuing my own outlook on life, I don't feel bound to draw lines of demarcation. Ethical literature, spiritual literature, 
is all the same story of man trying to understand who he is, what he belongs to, and how to function in life. And so you'll find expressions within Hermeticism, within the Hellenic and Persian traditions, within the Vedic traditions, as well as within certain contemporary writings that are poignant, poignant efforts to come to truth. And I think it's appropriate to drink from all those wells. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of Duncan Trussell, on the... uh, (laughs) The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, he asked you point blank whether your philosophy is thy will be done or my will be done. And to your credit, without hesitation, you said my will be done. Yes. But it also seems like you do believe that there are certain checks and balances in place. I know you don't like the term karma, but something akin to karmic law that have to be considered when obtaining your will. So do you think there is an objective morality? And if so, do you think these inherent universal checks and balances are where an actual objective morality comes from? That's an interesting question. Let me answer in the affirmative. Yes, I do believe there's an objective morality. I believe that to destroy what you can't create is violating that objective morality. I can't restore something to life that I've destroyed. And once you've wrecked something that you can't co-create, I think you've violated the essential nature of life. To use a pedestrian example, I live in Brooklyn. I have neighbors next door who had an extraordinary tree in their yard, which they cut down to an ember because they wanted more sunlight in the yard so that they could put down sod and then flip the house and sell the house and presumably get another $10,000 for it. Well, they destroyed this beautiful tree, which is probably 300 years old, which was a home to wildlife, which provided beautiful sucker to a whole block of neighbors. They planted sod They got their sunlight. They got their sod. The sod died, by the way, because people underestimate how damn hard (laughs) it is to take care of grass. Then they flipped their house and they took off. Now, again, this is a pretty elementary example, but I'm using it purposefully because this is what we deal with day to day in life. And I'm going to say another word about that in a moment. And they can't possibly recreate the thing that they destroyed. They can't possibly bring to Brooklyn another 300-year-old tree that people love and treasure. It's gone, and it's a tragedy. They're carrying debt for that. I don't know how that's going to emerge, but I have no doubt about it. The reason I'm using what might sound like a benign example is because we elude real questions by jumping into hyperbole and reaching for examples that actually don't suit our hour-to-hour life. So this is what's jokingly called the whatever it is, the Hitler equation or what have you on Twitter. You know, no sooner does somebody start raising a ethical question than someone evokes the Third Reich, you know, or some ultimate form of evil. Well, the truth is most of us, most of the time, are not dealing with ultimate questions of evil. We're dealing with very quotidian questions, but we avoid them because that just hits too close to home. So 
when I posit the question of loyalty, for example, to somebody, there's a subset of people that will immediately say, well, what if you work for Hitler? Should you be loyal to him? And it's like, well, wait a minute. We can have that conversation if you want to have that conversation in five minutes. For now, you know, since most of us are not dealing with these ultimate reckonings of what we call good and evil, let's stick with what's close to home. Would your spouse, would your girlfriend, would your best friend Mike, would your neighbor describe you as somebody who's loyal? And if not, why not? I don't want to talk about things in the abstract necessarily. There's a place for that. But I want to talk about things on the quotidian hour-to-hour level. I want to determine whether people who speak in terms of service are viewed that way by the people most immediately close to them, because a lot of people claim that label. I do not. I want to know whether the individuals who are involved immediately in my life, my children, my partner, my workmates, those to whom I owe materials on deadline for which I've been paid, I want to know what they think, what they think. Not what my stand is on Genghis Khan, but what what they think. So, you know, we escape these things all the time by inflating them. Hence, I'm using a pretty ordinary example, if an impersonal one, because I'm talking about somebody else, and not myself. I hurt people all the time and I'm unaware of it, maybe because I think I'm defending myself or, you know, something of that nature. And shame on me if I don't feel remorse over that. So I'm, I'm answering your question in the affirmative. I do think there is an objective. I prefer ethics to morality. I think ethics arise from empathy. And I think that on the scale of the psyche, for example, the good evil scale is empathy versus spite, empathy versus spite on the scale of the psyche. And so I do think there's an objective ethics. And I think it centers on not destroying that which you can't recreate. Okay. Well, you mention in the book, you believe in the power of prayer. So through the lens of the left-hand path, does that mean you're commanding the forces you're calling out to rather than petitioning them? Or, you know, how exactly do you approach prayer? For me, it's petitioning. Okay. Now, within the new thought culture, there are divisions about this, and understandably so. The figure from the new thought world who has been the greatest influence on me, who's probably the greatest influence in my life, is a mystic uh, named Neville Goddard, who's a British Barbadian figure who died in 1972. Neville taught a kind of extreme idealism in which all the reality that you experience, including my words right now, are eminent from your own emotionalized thoughts, your own psyche. So if one follows Neville's teaching to its logical conclusion, he would say that Any listener who's hearing this conversation right now is the one creating this. There's no Vince here. There's no Mitch here. There's just you, the listener. We're just figments of your own psyche. And for whatever reason, we're delivering these ideas to you in a way that you opted to receive them. And so that would be Neville's point of view. And he's capable of arguing for it with great elegance. And it's uh, actually a wonderful mystical analog to many things that have gotten popularized in the sciences today, perceptual studies, quantum theory, string theory, and so forth. So one could see a divide in that. Well, if your mind is the ultimate source of creation, then who are you praying to other than than self? 
But I actually don't feel that the human psyche is the only game in town. It may be true that consciousness or intellect or awareness is the ultimate arbiter of experiences. But uh, as I often say, we exist under or we experience many different laws and forces. We are not necessarily at the top of the ladder. We exist within a, a very unthinkably complex schema in which we may be at a possibly very disadvantaged position. And we go through a lot in terms of suffering, tragedy, pathos, pain, physical limits. And I do think, I do believe the searching individual is capable of forging relationships, including petitionary relationships with what might be called deific figures or unseen intelligences. I wouldn't be quick to write that off considering that for thousands and thousands of years of which our current epoch of history is just a, a tiny sliver, the human community throughout the globe participated in such practice. We marvel at ancient humanity's capacity for astronomy, agriculture, different forms of technology, albeit maybe primitive, but extraordinary, irrigation, engineering, architecture. We marvel at the psychological truth found in the ancient myths. I wouldn't be so quick to bypass the fact that deific petitioning, deific worship, the seeking of relationship with greater forces was part of humanity's story for the vast, vast stretch of human history, and to some degree still is. For me, as a seeker, that is well water that I want to sample. Well, you talk about the materialist view. If it is in fact true, which the materialist view says that consciousness arises from the meat in the brain, the question you posit is how does thought affect the meat of the brain? And the examples you gave were placebo, even honest placebo, which I'd never heard of before, and neuroplasticity. So with regard to consciousness being a fundamental element of the universe, which I think is the position of panpsychism, can you tell us a little bit about panpsychism and whether it's a dualistic theory of consciousness or just something like some third side position? Well, we live in a stage of life right now where it's impossible to take perception off the table in terms of our understanding of reality. I was giving a talk on academic psychical research, ESP research, and I was talking about quantum theory and different intersections of time and the fundamental nature of perception as a tool of selection within quantum physics. And uh, <laughs> the cognitive scientist Steven Pinker was kind enough to say, um, well, I could call Horowitz's description physics for poets, but that would be a disservice to poets. <laughs> and, uh, and yet, would it? Would it? <laughs> William Blake wrote, uh, if man could cleanse the doors of perception, he would see himself as he really is, infinite. And I think that right now, uh, not just in far-flung journals, but in the pages of Scientific American, you'll see articles where quantum theorists, mechanical scientists are going deeper and deeper and deeper into this truly extraordinary, vexing, remarkable question of the degree to which measurement selects, of the incredible persistence and amassing 
of data that shows relationships between objects, macro and micro, where no precise conveyance of relation can be identified. We have 80 years of academic psychical research, which Wikipedia will tell you is pseudoscience and nonsense, which is completely wrong, which is a kind of a result of hijacked crowdsourcing. I wrote an article recently at Boing Boing called The Enduring Legacy of J.B. Ryan. I wrote an article recently, same place, asking, is precognition real? I explore these questions in depth in Daydream Believer. The statistical evidence that we have for some extra physical capacity of thought, or what is sometimes called ESP, is as good and bulletproof and replicable as any that we have. And we can either run away from that, we can deny it, or we can come to terms with the adjoining questions and the vistas that it opens up. Materialism as a philosophy, which, as you were alluding, basically holds that matter creates itself, is no longer functional outside of media expression as a defining philosophy of life in the 21st century. Perception has got to be brought to the table. It's absolutely inescapable, which doesn't mean materialism is going to fade away gently. It's overwhelmingly persuasive in terms of the outer Newtonian mechanical world that we experience. There's one Schrodinger's cat, not an infinite number. And yet the logic imperative in 90 some odd years of quantum mechanics data is that infinite outcomes are possible because at least on the particle scale, and I would add not only on the particle scale nowadays, but in terms of the classical experiments, at least on the particle scale, an object can be and is in an infinite number of positions at once until a measurement is taken. So to say that measurement selects, it's not acute colloquialism. It's what we're dealing with. And we have a media apparatus. You know, I'm speaking more in terms of personalities, cultural things, in which materialism is going to remain dominant for a long, long time. But in terms of actual serious discussions that get down into the guts of life and serious research, it simply no longer covers the basis. Well, I'm glad you brought up quantum physics because I have made valiant attempts to read Something Deeply Hidden by Sean Carroll and Hidden Universe, Brian Greene. Mm -hmm. And so you're good at explaining things, you know, complicated concepts in layman's terms. So maybe you can correct me where I'm wrong, but I think I understand that matter exists as a wave in a superposition being everywhere at once and not taking form until it's viewed by an instrument of measure or a living consciousness, which then causes the collapse postulate. I think it's referred to to come into play, causing the matter to collapse into a particle or a form. Am I in the ballpark? Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. And that's true on the subatomic scale. One of the vistas facing quantum mechanics is whether and under what conditions that starts to emerge up the ladder into coarser matter, like helium molecules, for example. And there are some such experiments, which I write about in Daydream Believer. So one of the things that researchers are facing, and there are many, is whether or to what extent that quantum schema that you just described exists on the a more macro scale. 
And it used to be, say, 15 years ago, that science writers were very frustrated with the manner in which New Agers, as they saw it, would cherry pick from quantum theory and use it as affirmation of the law of attraction or something. And I understand their frustration. But, but what's interesting is, and there will be some listeners, you know, who throw their iPod, iPod <laughs> <laughs> who throw their phone or what have you across the room when I say this. But the fact is, the New Agers had a tiger by the tail. They had an instinct for something right, as they have often had. The New Thought movement in this country, going back 150 years or so, prefigured certain instincts that later proved correct. For example, about the placebo response, about neuroplasticity about mind-body stressors, and I would say a whole range of other things. And the extremely idealistic New Age point of view has actually come under less fire over the past several years than it did previously, because the field has grown increasingly fantastic and complex. There was a wonderful article by a Dutch philosopher named Bernardo Castro not long ago in Scientific American. He co-wrote it with some other researchers talking about how the selection effect is still the name of the game, even if you're using an automatized device, as scientists frequently are to take measurements in labs, even if you're using a device that's periodic, everything that you've just described physically, or one could even say metaphysically, is still going on. And I say metaphysically because superposition is infinitude. It is infinitude. And if an object is in an infinite number of places until a measurement is taken, whether by a sentient observer or an automatized device, then it becomes a logical imperative that infinite outcomes not only must be, but in fact are, that you have different possibilities that are playing out constantly across different intersections of time based on whether an observer elected to take or to not take a measurement. Everything changes. Everything changes. It's a kind of chaos theory on an infinite scale. And the Schrodinger's cat experiment, to which I alluded earlier, was a thought experiment from the mid-1930s in which the physicist Erwin Schrodinger wanted to compel quantum physicists to follow their own data to its extreme or surreal conclusions. And he said, apropos of the schema that you were just describing, and I think you captured it just right, that if you were to take a house cat and place it in one of two boxes and place around this cat's neck a collar with a poisonous device that if exposed to a single atom would unleash poison and kill the cat. So you take the cat, you place the cat with this collar in one of two boxes, and then you target a single atom at the box. Well, is the cat dead or alive? Common sense and all lived experience, of course, tells us, well, it's easy, right? If the atom went into the empty box, the cat is alive. If the atom went into the box with the cat, it tripped the poisonous device and the cat is dead. But Schrodinger said, no, incorrect. You would have to allow for both outcomes to exist because at one point it can be proven through interference patterns that when that atom was in a so-called wave state or a state of superposition, it was in both boxes at once. Not potentially, but actually. So you would have to come to grips with the existence of a dead, alive cat. It violates all common sense. And yet 
this is one of the most rudimentary thought experiments from the classical dawn of quantum theory. And it's telling us that we would have to accommodate a dead, alive cat simultaneously because the tripping device was at one time provably in either box. And we don't have the sensory apparatus to deal with that. We seem to need a sense of singularity and linearity to navigate through life. There's not an infinite number of Mitches here. There's not an infinite number of Vinces. There's just one of each of us. And yet, at least on the subatomic scale, we're being told that does not cover the basis of life, where something so fantastic is going on, so multidimensional, so to speak, that we don't have the sensory apparatus to take it in, which is why materialism is so compelling, which is also why thought that people might find frustratingly speculative can also be quite remarkable and foresightful and instinctive of certain things that we're not prepared to deal with. I'm speaking in generalities, but this is one area that has continued to open in life. And we're at the beginning of just extraordinary questions that are paraphrasing Richard Feynman that are understood only by people who don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So would the theory of new thought and mind causation, would the theory then be that the force of conscious observation forcing matter into a conclusion, does that mean we can manipulate the conclusion? That's my experiment. Okay. I prefer to say select versus manipulate or manifest because if measurement selects, then my question is, what are our senses other than biological tools of measurement? We taste, we touch, we smell, we sense distance or perspective, and so on and so forth. And if the sensory organs are tools of measurement. Is it possible? Is it possible that perception plays a vital role in experience, in what we concretely experience? We already know that not only is space-time bendable, but that the psyche seems to be able to move among different intersections of space-time. I detail this as carefully as I'm capable in my article, Is Precognition Real at Boing Boing, where I make a 10-year overview of experiments into precognition or retrocausality that were published in a paper in 2011 by a clinical psychologist at Cornell named Daryl Bem. And Bem's paper, as you can imagine, ignited a storm of controversy and pushback. But now that we're a decade on and BEM's results have been meta-analyzed and very, very rigorously meta-analyzed in a sample that included 90 different experiments in 33 different labs in 14 different nations, and they were found confirmatory. And that's a large sample to include in a meta-analysis. That does not mean that the majority of studies replicated BEM's original research. They did not. But the research by the analysis model that is typically used within meta-analyses was found confirmed, hands down. And as much as we might want to roll our eyes at terms like precognition, the fact is 
the statistical evidence is there. One can call into question and should call into question perhaps the models by which we gather statistical evidence. But Bem is nobody's poster child for poor practices. He was transparent to an unprecedented degree. Even his most withering critics would acknowledge as much and have acknowledged as much. So the question of whether the psyche can move amid different intersections of time is not something that just belongs to a drunken dorm room (laughs) conversation somewhere or New Agers talking in a hot tub. This is something for which we have statistical evidence. One can damn it all one wants, but it's there. I include all the sources and reference material, including the disputing theses in my article. The intrepid reader can check it out him or herself. But the fact is the phenomena that we're seeing and some of what the more expansive among quantum theorists have been dealing with are things that are leaking into other aspects of our perception, our understanding, our evidence-based analysis of human nature. And uh, it's getting weird. (laughs) Quantum theory and concepts, if you were to read them on paper and not have any context of who they were coming from or what it was, you would think they were the ramblings of a high person. (laughs) Of course you would, yeah. And, And of course... All the the founders of quantum mechanics, including Max Planck and others, were all really idealists. They believed very deeply that perception was a tool of selection. Perception interplayed with what would physically be present and measurable. The whole basis, in a certain sense, of world-class science as we know it in the 21st century was idealistic versus materialistic philosophically in nature. And... We can plug a lot of leaks, but ultimately that tide is going to rise and flood our basements. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in reference to the wish machine concept in the book, you make the admonition that we must seek clarity of self and wishes because clarity of effort is the one verifiable lever of the wish machine. The danger is that if we're blind to our real wishes, the wish machine nonetheless acts upon them. And I can personally relate to this with my unfortunate choice of day job not matching my personality at all, Uh uh, which has led me to try to change occupations very late in life after going through some serious introspection. So with regard to young adults that are trying to find their way in the world, what would you suggest they do to avoid the pressure of parental, societal, and religious even expectations to find clarity of self and their desires so they can find their true life's task? Well, I would offer two possibilities. And I suppose these could be for people of any age. If a person were to be asked, what do you want in life? We all have a a ready answer for that because we've been in one fashion or another repeating that question to ourselves as long as we've been cognizant. But I don't think we come to grips with the degree to which our responses are conditioned by internalized peer pressure, call it, by notions of what we're supposed to believe or what people from our walk of life or our station or our outlook are supposed to think. And I encourage people of any age, any social situation to really ask themselves in a deeply, deeply private and disinhibited way what they want and to be accepting of the answer. 
because we cordon off what we want based to a degree on some of the things we were talking about earlier, that somebody will have a thought about something and and it seems immediately selfish and they feel they have to reprocess it in some way. And there's time for that. And maybe in some cases that's necessary. And certainly in some cases, I may encounter extraordinary barriers into attaining what I want, or there may be a consequence or a cost that I don't want to pay. All of those are valid considerations, but the great tragedy would be not knowing it, not knowing it. And the surest way to not know it is to take for granted that I already do. And I think that it behooves people to sit down and really ask themselves with exquisite privacy and disinhibition and privately, privately, what they want. And if they do that stripped of conditioning, rhetorical questioning, recitations of things that are greatly familiar to us that we take as intrinsic truths because of their overwhelming familiarity, they will almost certainly be surprised. They might then find themselves standing before a very tough precipice, but at least know, at least know what it is that you really truly want without submitting it for anybody else's approbation. And I say that very broadly defined. And then I guess the question becomes one of what do you do? What do you do when you know that thing? I'm reminded of a talk that the spiritual philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti conducted with a group of Indian students. These were teenagers, I think in about the year 1966. And there was a young man in the audience who said to him, look, I want to be an engineer, but my dad wants me to grow up and enter his business. And if I go off and if I study to become an engineer, he'll disown me. I'll be put out on the streets. What should I do? And Krishnamurti said to him, sir, listen to me. Life is very, very strange. As soon as you make this decision that you want to be an engineer and you pursue that, things are going to happen that are going to be completely unexpected that will be an adjunct to all the pain and difficulty, consequence and death that you think you're going to suffer. You will find things that emerge that you never would have found if you didn't pursue that path. And as an adjunct, another student in the audience really called Krishnamurti out. He said, now listen, you're telling us that we have to pursue a path of individuality. You're telling us that we have to pursue a path of nonconformity. But how? How do we do this? How do we put into action the things that you're counseling? And Krishnamurti said to him, look, if you were walking down a road and you encountered a cobra, you wouldn't say, how do I get away from this cobra? You'd know, you'd know how to do it full well. You like playing cricket. You find ways and times of playing cricket. You sneak away from your studies. You don't do your homework. You sneak out of your window. You do all kinds of things so that you can do this thing that you really want to do. You don't ask how, you know. And I think inherent in what Krishnamurti was saying is that how while it seems so pragmatic, a question can just as easily become an avoidance. And when a person wants something with all his or her guts, I think, and at least we owe it to ourselves to inquire with our feet, I think it's like encountering that cobra on the road. You know how to get away from a cobra on the road. You will get away from that cobra on the road. You're not going to stroke your chin and say, how should I do this? And that 
can be what comes to a person only when the first part of the consideration is addressed, which is absolute fearless, disinhibited asking of oneself privately. What do I want? A lot of times the how seems very obscure because we haven't considered the what. Well, in the book, you refer to the imperative found in a true positive attitude that says to progressively disassociate yourself from everything and everyone that does not fulfill the needs of your development. How can you tell the difference between that type of people, whether or not someone is truly toxic to be around or not necessarily toxic, just someone that's holding you back? How can you tell the difference between that or whether you might be succumbing to narcissism? Hmm. I personally don't use the term narcissism very much, or if I do, I try to limit it as much as possible because I think it's become an overused term within our culture. It seems to me that everyone is diagnosable as a narcissist nowadays. <laughs> you know, it's, it's Trump, it's me, it's my neighbor Mike, it's, you know, everyone who does something I don't like is automatically a narcissist. And I think that term, like ego, for example, has become generalized almost to the point of a trope. My concern is that we, as a human culture, don't talk enough about cruelty on an intimate scale. And I have witnessed in my own life, which I can't imagine is exceptional, I can't imagine it's greatly different from anybody else's, and I have witnessed in the lives of others, people who succumb constantly to friendships, family relations, intimate relations that are characterized by a cruelty. And they never break free of these things because they think, oh, you know, I can't possibly not invite my mother-in-law to Thanksgiving, no matter how much she insults me year after year, because my kids, this, that, the other thing. And of course, there are consequences to these actions. And there may be consequences that are too great for the individual to want to bear. But just as I encourage a person to know what he or she really wants, know what relationships you do and do not want to be around. There are people who have experienced decades and decades of suffering at the hands of a so-called friend or somebody else who's constantly directing subtle put-downs, who hurts you, always with plausible deniability. Plausible deniability is the primary weapon of the bully who never do anything about it, who never get away from it. And we're taught within our therapeutic culture that responses have to come from within, that it's how we feel about ourselves, that we have to use different cognitive tools and methods. And I think, frankly, all that goes to hell when you're dealing with cruelty. It's attributed to Napoleon, although it was actually said by a Prussian field marshal, von Moltke the Elder, every plan immediately fails upon contact with the enemy. And when a minister, a therapist, a teacher, a counselor is telling his or her client, don't react, do this, do that, is that coming from direct experience that can be summoned right now? Or is that just something that we're asked to believe is true by dint of familiarity and its reasonable coalescence with other principles in our culture? My contention is that nothing is more depleting of an individual's life than proximity to cruelty. And I want people as a starting point to at least consider that and to realize that they absolutely 
have an option. They absolutely have an option. There may be economic reasons or other reasons that make that option inaccessible at a certain point, but at least be aware that it exists, at least be aware that it exists. And are the consequences too great? Frequently, consequences are a lot milder than we think they're going to be. There are steps I've taken in life to get away from people who were plagued to me, and the consequences turned out to be not so bad. I remember in upstate New York, again, pedestrian example, but it's where we live. I had a neighbor who was terrible. He would leave these floodlights on all night. He made a lot of noise. He was a pain in the ass on many, many, many levels. Every lighting of a candle, every burning of incense, every prayer, every affirmation didn't do a damn thing. What I needed to do was move. And when I moved, I felt this flood of relief. I never, never, never once looked back on it. I needed to get out of proximity to that person. And I needed to do so as quickly as I possibly could. And when a child, for example, is in a bullying situation or what have you, there are going to be very limited options, unfortunately, for that child to enact. He may be getting bullied, for example, by a physically larger peer and, you know, saying ignore him or stand up to him or whatever is just not possible. You know, what that kid needs is to get away from the thing that's endangering him. And I take all this very, very seriously because I think it's areas that we've been conditioned to neglect. There aren't always therapeutic, psychological, or spiritual solutions on the terms that they are often fed to us. I think analyzing and acting on the problem of cruelty in our lives could represent the great turning point that an individual is looking for. Okay. Well, speaking of proximity to cruel people and getting away from them, I've heard you say in an interview that people have to be sure that they actually do want to be happy. Like, have you had any experience with someone that finds comfort in and enjoys self-pity? Well, I think that a lot of the things that we say we want to be rid of, we secretly find exciting. I think we get a lot of thrill out of conflict. I think we get a lot of thrill out of violence. If we didn't, we'd get away from these things much more quickly, I surmise. There is a perverse thrill that comes from rerunning grudges and arguments in our heads. That rush of release and excitement that we experience when we're describing how awful somebody was to us or what have you conceals within it a kind of perverse thrill, like what we get when we're riding a roller coaster or watching a horror movie or something of that nature. We're fed by conflict and friction to some extent. And the things that we claim to want to be rid of are sometimes sources of considerable excitement. And we owe it to ourselves to at least examine that. I have known people who reveled in pulling grenade pins, so to speak, at family gatherings, saying the same thing year after year after year that could only inevitably result in hurt feelings and conflict. And they did it because they enjoy it. Uh, there's a lot of selfishness in human nature. We eat our favorite foods and that tells us a lot about how we behave in relationships. And I think we really owe it to ourselves to consider whether the thing that we want to disclaim is the very thing that we're hanging on to or the very thing that we're self-creating. Within the Oedipus drama, for example, 
Oedipus receives a prophecy that he's going to wed his mother and kill his father. And he's so frightened by this, so unsettled by this, that in his act of overcompensation, he winds up bringing to bear the very prophecy that he was terrified of. We do that all the time. Just watch somebody who is afraid that a certain esteemed peer is not paying sufficient attention to them. What do they do? They impose upon that person's time and space in a way that makes them disrespected. It's the malady of human nature that we trigger the very things we're afraid of by overcompensation, or we hang on to the things that we say we don't want because they deliver something to us. I used to have a friend who would say she wanted a boyfriend. She wanted to be in a steady, stable relationship, something that many people want. And she would go out with guy after guy after guy who she would then on Sunday mornings at brunches tell stories about and say, oh, this is the crazy thing he did. This is the crazy thing he did. And everybody would roll their eyes and say, oh, my God, you know, and I started asking myself, if this person really wants a steady mate, there's got to be some signifier that you're going out with one of 20, 30, 40 weirdos who you profess to be unsatisfying. So do you really want to mate? Do you really want to mate? I know that's what you're telling yourself. I know that's what you may feel at certain points, instances, and times in your life, but you've got to have a mass sufficient experience at this point so that you know some of the warning signs and you get more picky about which dates you say yes to. I think there was a great deal of enjoyment in going out with weird guys and telling dramatic stories the next day at brunch. You know, there was a certain thrill in it and you could see it by the extent to which the pattern was repeated. I have the same things in myself. So this is all really part of the same whole in terms of what we've been discussing. Am I willing to look at those areas of life that I complain about, but that may actually hold the thrill of excitement, friction, conflict for me? And do we do that through our inner talking? I think that's something that a person owes it to him or herself to consider. Mm -hmm. So, One of the things I've noticed from scanning through your Instagram page is that your followers span multiple generations. And it seems like with the rise of technology, it's not only changed the way we relate to and socialize with each other, but also what's important to us. So what would you say are the differences in the spiritual pursuit among Gen X, the millennials and the Zoomers? Well, I do think that social media has worked in effect on people. It hasn't changed human nature, but it's disinhibited human nature. And it's worked in effect on people. I'm not entirely sure that it's generational, but it has contributed to sarcasm, snark, rhetorical questions, shorthand, certain phraseology being used as part of common parlance, which I think is a real problem. Sarcasm can be very funny and it can be a great relief in trying to frame a problem or a frustration in one's life. But when it becomes the lingua franca, when it becomes the vocabulary of everyday life, we start to dehumanize one another. And I think that our generation has become very accustomed to humiliating other people as a common pursuits sustained 24-7 by social media. And I see it all the time. No sooner does somebody post something than 
someone pitches a rhetorical question to them, which is a brutalization of what a question is really supposed to be, or that there's sarcasm or a snarky meme or something of that nature. And I don't know that that problem has afflicted younger people more significantly than it has older people, but I want no part of it. And I feel very strongly that the individual debases him or herself in ways that are unseen, but absolutely felt by participating in gossip, sarcasm, rhetorical questioning, humiliation of other people as a near constant online. And it it happens all the time. It doesn't mean desisting from calling out injustice. It doesn't mean desisting from caring and being concerned about abuses. But when our language online is this constant eye-rolling, sarcastic, wise-ass language, I think the individual is deceiving him or herself by thinking that that doesn't debase one's capacity to stand taller. I think that there's a price to be paid for that. And if a person is dissatisfied with his or her life, spend one hour, one hour desisting from trash talk and see if you don't stand taller in some palpably felt way. It's tremendously debasing. And we feel a shame over it, which we deny by throwing ourselves back into the mix. It's like having a hangover and taking another drink. Yeah, it works temporarily, but only temporarily. And then we have to keep doing it, keep doing it. That's a situation that we've gotten into with social media. Again, human nature hasn't changed, but this side of ourselves has grown disinhibited. People are infinitely more likely to be rude over social media than they are over email, more likely to be rude over email than they are over the telephone, more likely to be rude over the telephone than they are face-to-face. We have this illusion of distance. We have this illusion of privacy. And it's totally illusory because what's happening is the same thing. If you throw a rock at another person, they're going to be wounded, period. And you're going to have to pay a price for that. And if you're doing that constantly, the price may be all the greater and all the more unseen because we all think of ourselves as good people, one of the great deceptions of human nature. We are what we do. And if we as a human community, as individuals, don't get in front of this, we're not going to make it. We're simply not going to make it. So again, I don't know if there's a difference between younger and older folk online in terms of how they've been affected by this, but obviously a whole generation has now been raised with it. Well, if there is one main concept or ideal that you want your readers to take away from Daydream Believer, what would that be? Experiment. Experiment. If you're searching, whatever your point of view, whatever your background, whatever your religious assumptions, whatever your therapeutic assumptions You owe it to yourself just in private on your own terms without joining anything, without paying anybody, without putting a label on yourself to pursue some of these questions that you've raised and that that we've been exploring. I want people to be really free to experiment. It's the one area of life, the psyche, which I see as a compact of thought and emotion, is the one area of life where we have total freedom, total privacy, exquisite liberty doesn't mean you're going to act on everything that you think of. You have relationships, you have debts, you have obligations in the world. All of that is very real. But what a tragedy to not experiment and consider ways of living, ways of being that might open you to unconsidered paths. 
that would be the one takeaway. Awesome. Well, Mitch, it has been fascinating talking with you. Likewise. I loved your questions. They're tough questions because they're informed questions, and I, I really appreciate that. Well, thank you for that. Well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Well, the book we've been discussing primarily is Daydream Believer, and that's out right now. I've got a new book coming out in early November called Uncertain Places, where I consider everything from UFOs to psychical research to the satanic and much, much more. And I'm excited about that. Awesome. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Mitch, thank you again for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.
speak, cannot speak about.